0: If you would go ahead and grab a Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter twenty-four. Luke twenty-four is where we will begin in this part of our worship this morning. Luke chapter twenty-four. It is good to see you this morning, and especially good for me uh, because I did not see you guys last week, and uh, I am. We have returned from all our travels, at least most of our travels, and uh, it is good to be with you again. And and, uh, I feel a little bit refreshed. I hope that. You guys are feeling refreshed, especially because you got to hear a new voice, besides my voice, that has been kind of droning in your ears for quite a while now. Appreciate so much uh, Brent uh, kind of taking the brunt of uh, the teaching uh, over the past couple of weeks here and uh, filling in and giving us a break. It was truly good for us to be away, and it's truly good for us to be home. That's a great thing about vacation, right? You're always happy to leave and happy to come back. So uh, it's good to be with you this morning. We have visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here and worshiping God with us this morning. And uh, we are... We want you to feel welcome, we're excited that you're here, we want to get to know you and talk to you more as much as we can when we have covers over our faces where you can't tell if we're smiling or sticking our tongues out or what we're doing under there, but uh, we're glad that you're here and uh, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Luke 24 and verse 13, Luke 24 and verse 13, these are some events that as we'll see occur on the day of Jesus' resurrection, on the Sunday after his crucifixion. Luke 24 and verse 13 says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Drop down to verse 18. It says, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Which is kind of funny. Jesus is... Obviously, the main character and the things they're talking about. But he says, "'What things?' And they said to him, "'Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning.' And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they're walking and talking about everything that had happened, and Jesus approaches them and he kind of baits them into talking about, well, what are you guys talking about? And they say, oh, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened? And Jesus well, what do you mean? What, what kinds of things had happened? And so they tell him the story. And it's a story that I think is very helpful in understanding the mentality of Jesus' disciples in this historical moment. The moment after his crucifixion, but before they were sure about whether Jesus was really raised from the dead. So these were men who had walked with Jesus and had heard him preach and had seen his miracles. And they had seen, sometimes even with just a word, him change the physical world as when he calmed the storm. And slowly they had come to believe that he was the Christ, the promised Messiah of God. And so what they say here is in verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But something happened that has now convinced them that he was not the one to redeem Israel. And that is in verse 20, he says, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now, when they say that, they're referring to that whole series of events that we're very familiar with as Christians. The idea that the Jews conspired against Jesus and that the chief priests seized him and that they questioned him and they beat him and they spat in his face and they stripped him and mocked him and they jeered at him and they condemned him to die and they watched and they laughed as he died. And all of this, in this one statement, they say they condemned him to death. And and the implication is... If the Messiah is going to die like that, he can't be the Messiah. So we were hoping that he was the one who was to redeem Israel. But because of what's happened, we have lost our hope. And yet, there's something else here. And it must have been at the heart of their discussion, which is... You know, some of the women came back from the tomb today and they said he wasn't there. And they said maybe they've seen angels. And so some others went to it and they saw the tomb, but they didn't see Jesus. And and so we don't know what to believe. We're confused. We're discouraged. So look at Jesus' response in verse 25. In verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus challenges them a little in verse 25, that you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And I think the emphasis here is on the word all, also in verse 27, in all the scriptures, the things pertaining to him. See, what had happened was, they, the scriptures talked about both the fact that the Messiah would suffer and that the Messiah would then be glorified. And so he says, you're slow to believe that both of those things could be true. And I think that disconnect explains a lot about the way the Jews expected the Messiah to come. See, it's awfully hard to reconcile if you don't have the story of Jesus. What it would look like for the Messiah to suffer and what it would look like for the Messiah to be glorified. So for all practical purposes, they just left off the suffering part. So let's not worry about those passages. Those must be talking about something else. But the glory, we can focus on the glory. We can really, really tie ourselves to that. And so what Jesus does is he takes these two strands of messianic prophecy and he weaves them together. And what he says is that the cross comes before glory. And I want to tell you, there is a principle here. It is a principle about the way the world works. It is a principle about the way God works. It is a principle that was true of Jesus, and it is also a principle that is true of us. That if we are to learn it and absorb it and live by it, it will give us strength when we are tired and worn out. It will give us courage when we are disheartened. It will help us to endure in a stronger and better way. And that principle is just this, that when we look at the cross, we see this principle distilled, which is suffering comes before glory that those two things are connected. And in Jesus, we see the power suffering can have to then become the basis for glory. Now, I want to show you how that's true. First of all, I want to show you how that's true with regard to Jesus. Let's go first to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. I want you to see how in different ways this really just runs as a thread through the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to see that that these disciples are not the only ones who were confused. As they talked about, well, how could he suffer? How could he be glorified? How could he really be the redeemer if all this happened to him? Because Peter talks about some people who had that same question. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring. What person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. Now do you hear the confusion? The prophets who are saying these words are then asking, what am I saying? What does this mean? When is this going to happen? How could this be? They're confused about the very things they are prophesying. And so he indicates that, well, this wasn't about them, it was about a future time. But specifically in verse 11, it says, when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories, the glories that would follow, the idea that there would be suffering and then there would be glory. And I want to take a moment and just show you what that looks like. I'm going to put these verses on the board. You're welcome to study them at your own time so that you can kind of get a deeper feel for what's being said in these passages. But I want to show you that there are two strands of Old Testament messianic prophecy and that there are two directions they would go in so that you can get a feel for how confused the Jews would have been and how confused the prophets would have been. So first of all you have passages like Psalm 22 and really most of Psalm 22 especially those first 18 verses or so really focus on the suffering of David and then that is then brought forward to describe the Messiah. And very many times in the New Testament, Psalm 22 is applied to Jesus and his story. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is how the psalm begins, which are words you would probably recognize from Jesus saying them on the cross. It says in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You might recognize that these are some of the same words that are said by the people surrounding the cross about Jesus. Oh, if God loves him so much, then let God save him. Come down from the cross and we'll all believe. But these are words that describe suffering. They are about the Messiah and they're about the Messiah suffering. Uh, Isaiah 53, which Stephen referenced in the song Beautiful Lamb is kind of built around. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So the idea of pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, oppressed, afflicted speaks to suffering. And so you have a passage that's describing the servant of God coming and suffering in obedience to God. Then you have passages like this. Passages that don't describe suffering but describe great honor and glory given to the Messiah. This is Psalm 110. We just studied this last week in our uh, men's study in Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so you're going to be elevated to the right hand of God until God makes all your enemies completely subject to you. That is a position of great honor. And that is also fulfilled in Jesus where Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Daniel 7 and verse 14, and to him, this is a character called the son of man in Daniel 7, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see the glory? Okay, so here is someone who is going to reign forever and ever. He is given a kingdom, he is given dominion, and it is a dominion that will never be taken from him. And so when you read that passage, you say, wow, who is that? I want to know about that guy. Isaiah 9 and verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I hope you get it. On the one hand, he's suffering. On the other hand, he's reigning. How could that be? And you can see how the prophets would say, what are we talking about? I know what I'm saying, but I don't know what I'm saying. And so they asked, how could this be? And the answer, as Jesus brings it, as Jesus explains to those men on the road to Emmaus, is simply, didn't the Christ have to suffer before he entered into his glory? That suffering comes before glory. So Jesus shows us that the path to the glory God's going to give goes through suffering. It goes through the cross first. Let's go over to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. This is an interesting text I think we're probably fairly familiar with because it's a very commonly referred to text to describe how Jesus humbled himself. But I'm not sure we often finish the text out. So I want to show you that. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5, where Paul has been talking in the context about the, the danger of selfish ambition. and Instead, we put others above ourselves. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he says the the point of Jesus coming to earth is the idea of him lowering himself, emptying himself, becoming humiliated and suffering, becoming perfectly obedient. But I want you to see where the text goes from there. Yes, we, we see the lowering, but look in verse 9. Paul is not done. He says, verse 9, Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So on the basis of his perfect obedience, his lowering himself, God says I have, he has qualified himself to be honored. Jesus has faithfully followed God's will, and so God has exalted him because suffering comes before glory. God has given him this name, this position, this title, this authority. He is no longer merely a Jewish rabbi and carpenter. He is son of God. He is Lord in Christ. He reigns, but first he suffers. So I want you to get the feeling When you look at Jesus' story, that there is this pattern, lowering before exaltation, suffering before glory, because that's the pattern that we need to see in how we understand Jesus, and when we understand Jesus rightly, we're ready to think about ourselves. Let's go to Hebrews 12 for a moment. Hebrews 12, we'll only look at a couple of passages in Hebrews, and then we'll start to think about you and me. Hebrews 12. This is verse 1. Hebrews 12 and verse 1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses and here the cloud of witnesses he's referring to is the, the group of people in Hebrews 11 who are the great heroes of faith who are now surrounding us, watching us, encouraging us Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he says when you encounter hardship and difficulty and suffering, you look to Jesus. You consider him as you endure. Jesus is a pattern for us Because it says specifically in verse 2, for the joy that was set before him. The joy. So let me explain what I believe the joy is here. The joy is the idea that that after the suffering there comes glory. After the, the lowering comes exaltation. That there is the great thrill of knowing you have not only fulfilled God's purpose for you, but that now God is going to be glorified through you. And that every one of God's purposes for the world can be accomplished through your work the joy that was set before him. That fueled Jesus to endure the cross and despise the shame. He signed up for the shame and for the pain because he knew this is not the last word. This is not the end of the story. There is more to come that after the suffering comes glory. I want you to see that when we think about Jesus on the cross, Very often, and I think sometimes this creeps into our observance of the Lord's Supper. When we think about Jesus on the cross, we're usually very somber and sad. And I understand that that there is something that is awfully tragic about the fact that God had to send his son to die for us. And I understand that my sin is a part in that, and that, that upsets me. But I want you to see that Jesus on the cross is not all sad. Because it's not the end. Instead, what it talks about is a joy that is set before him. That Jesus goes through the cross because he knows there's something greater on the other side of the cross. Something that's going to make everything about the cross worth it. And it seems to me that in our thinking about the cross, we need that same redemptive idea. We need to say, yes, this is awful, but boy, I sure am glad it happened. And I am thankful for it. And so while I'll never be happy that Jesus went to the cross for me... I can be thankful and I can be joyful because of Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' death. What you see in Jesus is a white-hot passion to do the will of God all the way. He will not stop. He will not be deterred. He is determined. And there is something there for us that if we only see the tragedy of it, we miss. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Look to Jesus when you go through something. Because he is the one who saw the joy that was worth the suffering. And he becomes an example to us in that. Go back a few pages to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. In this section in Hebrews, he has been talking about the comparison of Jesus to angels and how Jesus is greater than angels. And he does a little bit of a play here on Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. Hebrews 2 and verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So the implication there and the way he's been reasoning is angels aren't the ones who who the world was subjected to, but Jesus was. It has been testified somewhere, verse 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he talks about how in this psalm, there's a reference to the Son of Man and his exaltation, that all things are put under his feet. But here's the thing. Even though in the Hebrew writer's words, we know that that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power and that he is the exact image or imprint of God. Even though we know that, he says we don't see that yet. Did you notice that in verse 8? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But what do we see? Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now that is a rich idea. And I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity to think about what it means to be crowned with glory and honor because of of the suffering of death. I believe at its heart what it is saying is that Jesus' death shows that he fully deserves the honor and glory, the exaltation that he has received. He is worthy. And so Jesus is exalted, and Jesus has put over all things. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and yet we don't see it fully played out yet. We still see the principalities and powers not in subjection to him at the moment. That is still being worked out. But before that glory, he says, there has to be the suffering of death because suffering comes before glory. Now, the reason why it is so important for us to understand Jesus and his sacrifice correctly is because it's only when we get him right that we can begin to think about ourselves in the right way. And you can see the allusions in all of these passages that we've discussed, not just to Jesus and his suffering, ...but to his disciples and our suffering. And that's what I want us to think about for the last few minutes here. That is, suffering comes before glory not just for Jesus. It's also true for us. You see here in Hebrews 2 and verse 10. Look in verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist... ...in bringing many sons to glory... ...should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So one of the things he continually says in the book of Hebrews... ...is that Jesus learned obedience or demonstrated, gained obedience, even though he was a son, because he suffered. And so if he is going to do that, what's his goal? Look again at verse 10. He says, in bringing many sons to glory. We follow his path of suffering and humiliation, and when we follow it, we get the glory God gives. Just as he has been exalted and raised up, so we will be exalted and raised up. So when he says... Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains how Jesus lowered himself and then God highly exalted him. The implication is, for us, suffering will come before glory. Or when the Hebrew writer says, Looking to Jesus, run with endurance the race that is set before you. He is implying that after our race is done, there will be glory for us. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. A lot of 1 Peter is focused on the idea that, that Christians are about to suffer and he is trying to prepare them for that suffering so that they respond in the right way. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though, as though, as though, as though something, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the command here is a very interesting command. In verse 12, don't be surprised. That is, don't let this be something that catches you off guard, that is unexpected for you. And by the way, I've said this before. I will probably continue to say it again. It appears to me that Christians, especially in America, are almost always surprised when people don't like us. Don't be surprised. That's the way the world works. The world, as in the system of people who are against God and his people, will always be opposed to God and his people. That's just the way the world works. Don't be surprised, he says, when there are sufferings and trials that come upon you. Instead, he says, what you should do, verse 13, is rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see, when you suffer because you are doing what is right, you are Just like Jesus. That's what happened to Jesus. He suffered because he did the Father's will. And so you rejoice in that connection, what Paul calls the fellowship of his sufferings. And when you do, he says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is just a fascinating phrase, the spirit of glory and of God. And I believe the heart of that idea, the spirit of glory and of God, is that this is the same God and the same Spirit who turned Christ's shame into glory, who took His suffering and redeemed it. So when your suffering happens, and when people are ugly to you for the name of Christ, you are insulted. Don't push back at that. Don't be surprised at that. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice because you are more like Jesus when you suffer And you'll be more like Jesus when he, verse 13, is glorified. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. This is where Paul is describing his sufferings for the gospel. And I want you to hear the language he uses where he talks about the glory he is expecting and how that gives him perspective for where he is in his suffering. 2 Corinthians 4. This is verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So let me, let me take a time out here. I don't believe what Paul is saying is just the natural idea of aging. You know, we're getting older, but we're getting younger on the inside. That's not the idea. The idea is we're suffering and dying because we're trying to preach the gospel. And so even though that's happening on the outside, I'm getting stronger in my spirit. 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So he says in verse 17 that this is a light momentary affliction. I don't think I have to go into great detail with this audience about what Paul suffered and the things Paul went through as a preacher of the gospel and an apostle. But there was tremendous suffering. I don't think any of us would look at Paul's sufferings and say, you know what, yeah, you were stoned and left for dead that time at Lystra, but you know, that's just light, momentary affliction. Get over it, Paul. I imagine he had the scars of that for the rest of his life. That there was affliction that Paul went through. He lists them at one point in 2 Corinthians. And he says that's light and momentary. But what what could give Paul the strength to say that? In what way would his inner man be renewed to the point that he can say, this is nothing? Well, he says in verse 17, It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I'm going to have glory, he says, that's going to make this look like nothing. That's what I'm looking forward to. So right now, what I'm enduring is light compared to that. A weight of glory. And what I'm enduring right now is temporary. It's momentary compared to what eternity will bring. That is the vision that Christians need as we go through suffering. The vision that says what I'm enduring right now only comes before the glory that's to be revealed. In fact, Paul says that in this way in Romans 8. This is a passage we studied Oh, a couple of times in recent weeks here. If children, he says, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we suffer with him just like Jesus went to the cross. We suffer, but we'll be glorified with him just as he was exalted and put at the right hand of the father. So we will be exalted. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That there is glory coming, not just for Jesus, the glory that's to be revealed to us. Glory. Eternal life. Where we live in the presence of God. Where we experience the fullness of the love and joy of God. Glory. Glory, where we get to see Jesus face to face glory where our mortal bodies are transformed in the bodies that live forever without getting sick without getting tired and without getting sick and tired glory where we have new and greater roles in the work of god glory where we see things and understand things more fully and deeply you know, we used to sing, I don't guess we sing it that much anymore. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Someday we will know, as we are known, glory. Glory where we are elevated far above our stations and what we deserve, thanks to the grace of God. Glory where we join with the redeemed of all ages, the people everywhere, who have ever lived, who have been obedient to God. And we live together with God in glory. But you know, before that, we suffer. We get sick and we die. We're singled out for our faith. Sometimes we suffer reproach because of the life we try to live and our connection to the gospel. And we hurt And we groan, and we're confused, and we're frustrated, and we're angry, and we're disappointed. And sometimes we're confused, and we're frustrated, and angry, and disappointed with ourselves. We don't always know why, we don't always know for how long. And yet, Jesus calls to us from the cross Can you see him? He's saying, Don't worry. Suffering comes before glory. This is not the end of the story. I want to say to you, I apologize for the fact that the font is about to get small. This helps us. This helps us in the pains of life. We go through things, and they're hard. And I am not saying that just because things are hard sometimes in life, that that somehow connects us to Jesus' suffering. And yet, if we suffer well, if we suffer and continue to obey, if we suffer in hope, then we can know that that suffering comes before our glorification. It helps us as we suffer for doing right. Sometimes there will be people who treat us in unkind and unfair ways. Sometimes we will suffer in some kind of formal way, getting fired from a job. It's entirely possible. We'll see in this country the, the idea that things would be illegal. It would be illegal for us to do, practice our faith, say things that the Bible says. And yet as we do, we can know with confidence that we can rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings. Not to be surprised, but to be prepared. To understand that our suffering comes before our glory. It helps us when it feels like the world is winning. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I feel like things aren't going the way they should go if God's really in control. And so we look at situations, we look at our world, we look at our society. Maybe we look at our community and our families. And we say things are not going well. We're probably on the losing team. It helps us to remember suffering comes before glory. It helps us when our plans don't pan out. You know, there's a real disappointment in that, uh, where we have things, especially when they're concocted in faith, and we're trying to do what we should, and yet things don't go like we would plan, to know that even when we suffer, it's not the end. Uh, It helps us when we feel like a failure, when it feels like all that we're trying to accomplish in life all that we're trying to do in our families, all that we're trying to do in our communities, all that we're trying to do in our churches. It just feels like, well, what, what difference have I made? It helps us to remember, suffering comes before glory. It helps us when we get tired. I'm sorry, I missed one. When we're misunderstood, when we get tired, sometimes there are opportunities we have uh, where people don't treat us the way we should. Sometimes we just get worn out. In all of it, do you hear it? Suffering comes before glory. I love the fact that Jesus. one of Jesus' favorite sayings is that he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. And it helps us to know when we humble ourselves, and instead of glory, what we see is people walking all over us, other people getting into the limelight. It helps us to remember this is the pattern. Suffering comes before glory. And when we are weak, it helps us to remember Jesus sure looked weak, hanging and suffering and bleeding, mocked and rejected, oppressed and despised. But that's okay, because suffering comes before glory. Those men on the road to Emmaus, they are confused, they are disappointed, they are bewildered. They thought they would see Jesus glorified, and instead they only saw him crucified. Because they did not know that suffering comes before glory. But when we look at the cross, we see something different than they saw, don't we? We see hope. We see a greater future. We see that's not the end of the story. And so, yes, we mourn, but we mourn in hope. And we suffer, but we await because glory is coming. And that is the hope of all disciples of Jesus, that just as he was glorified, so someday we will be. I hope that you'll think about those things, and I hope that they'll be a blessing to you as they have been to me. This is the time in our service where we offer the invitation for those who are here who need to give their lives over to the Lord Jesus to accept him and become disciples of his. If you're ready to turn away from your sins and put your faith in him, have your sins washed away, we'd love nothing more than to help you do that this morning. If there is a need that you have, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.